Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montesi without James Begley for this episode, who at the time of recording had just welcomed a baby girl into the world. I sat down with Kevin Graham for a really interesting case study on how to go from a fairly typical suburban South Australian life to digital nomad in a matter of months. Digital nomads are basically people who leverage technology to work when and wherever they want, and it's become a big lifestyle trend. In 2014, Kevin was doing pretty well for himself in Adelaide, working in online marketing and doing a few property developments. Then he decided to drop everything and move to Chiang Mai in Thailand, having never even travelled to Asia before. Step by step, Kevin tells us how he did it. The practical side, research, planning and logistics, and of course the business, how he's earning an amazing income from affiliate marketing and flipping websites. Kevin shares the tips and traps. It's not all sipping cocktails by the beach. Kevin talks about lifestyle fantasy versus reality and personal lessons learned from the adventure so far. Enjoy our chat. Kevin, welcome to Rooster Radio. Great. Thanks for uh, having me on. Mate, it's awesome that you're here and you're in town. We've spoken, I think, over the last year quite a few times over email. Um, we were talking about getting you on the show um, unfortunately, Rooster Radio technology didn't allow for a, a Skype recording at the time, but we've got you in here, mate. Yeah, it's, it's great to finally be here. Like in the, uh, the Rooster Coop, I've had <laughs> what, like 50, 80 episodes out of here now. Yeah, and pretty I'm much. Finally, like sitting in the room. Mate, it's, um, it's a, a pretty underwhelming place, I would imagine, mate. What are, what's your observations initially? I mean, it's a very startup vibe. I'll give it that. <laughs> yeah. Good answer. Uh, before we kick things off, uh, there's a couple of drinks in front of us. I like you're, – you're, you're clearly a man with an ear for detail because you notice that at, at Rooster we like to have a drink when we interview and you've, um, you've come with some goods. Yeah. I mean, like I heard the interview where you guys had um, – was it Glenn or Tim, one of the Coopers on board? Yeah. You smashed you a few sparklings during the session. Yeah. Um, the uh, Pirate Life, or sorry, not Pirate Life, the guy who's setting up the Port Admiral yep, was on, yep, on earlier, and he had the uh, the Port Local Lagers in, yeah, and so when, when we were teeing up like this actual session, I was like, all right, I'll bring in some uh, Sang Som, which is like the, the local uh, Thai rum, so we can have a bit of a drink while we uh, do this podcast. Yeah, just had a, had a sip then, it's um, interesting, I'm not a big Big rum drinker. Is this so? Is this the your typical everyone drinks this stuff? Yeah. So if you go to like pretty well any bar, they'll have it on there. Half the time it'll be marked as Thai whiskey, which it's not a whiskey, it's a rum. Um, it won a gold medal back in the 1970s, and they still stick that on the uh, <laughs> bottle now. Well, that's very good. Now, as we're having our first drink, tell us what a typical day looks like for you. Yeah, so um, I'll wake up at whatever time in the morning I wake up. I don't set an alarm. It's, you know, somewhere between 7.30 and 9 in the morning. Get up, jump on my computer, handle a few tickets, for like support tickets for my hosting company. Then somewhere around 10.30 or 11, I'll go and hit the gym, which is in the building next door to my condo. Um, go and do a workout, uh, come back have a look at stuff for a little bit and then go grab lunch around like one-ish. Um, there's a ton of amazing food on my doorstep um, where I live in in Chiang Mai in Thailand. So it's kind of like the university district. There's a bunch of the small cafes around, eateries, coffee shops, bars. Like it's all right there. Um, and so occasionally I'll go to the new McDonald's that opened up like six months ago. Um, but most of the time I'll go and eat like uh, some Thai street food which is like a dollar fifty a plate, um, and then I'll come back and the afternoon is sort of my like uh, solid focus work session. I'll work from like one thirty or two through to generally six, and then eat dinner and then just chill in front of the TV and watch you know Billions or The Block or whatever whatever's on at the time. So it's interesting because you know whether you agree or not, you kind of get bundled into that passive income space that, that everyone's quite hot on at the moment. But sounds like you're actually doing a fair bit of work. It's not just a holiday. Yeah. I mean, in terms of people love to sell the dream of like, yeah, you're sitting on a beach with your laptop and like, <laughs> you know, the, the problem is that sand isn't good for laptops. There's a ton of glare on your screen. 
Um, and there's no beaches in Chiang Mai is the other half of the problem. Um, but when you're in those spots, you just can't get work done. Like the real work's done when you're sitting somewhere, you know, grinding out those hours and getting the work done. Um, it's the unsexy part of all of this stuff. But, you know, if you want to build that passive income, then you've got to put in that time. Or if you start, you know, building other more real businesses like I did with the hosting business, then again, you're going to put in that time. Okay, so take us back to 2014, was it, when you first started looking at this journey? So you're in Adelaide and from what I read, you were doing well in online marketing. You started even doing some property developments, which is your very much typical uh, pathway to Adelaide wealth. Um, How the hell did you end up in Chiang Mai uh, and you hadn't even been to Asia? Yeah, so... um it was 2012, 2013, I started looking into the, the various like passive income space um, and then built a few uh, small single-family occupancy uh, residential dwellings in Port Piri. Um, Port Piri was an attractive spot for building them because you can buy a block of land for 30, 35 grand, get river gum to put a house on there for about 100 and, you know, 10 grand on finish it off and so 140 150k all in you've got a finished house there ready for rent and the rental on rental income on a property like that is about 230 240 a week so it's positively geared which is extremely rare to find in australian real estate mm. so i started building a few of them and it was all right but you know you're making maybe 50 bucks a week off a property and very quickly you run out of capital mm. um now, tech had been something that I'd been into for for forever. Like, I made my first money online when I was about 14. I had some web design clients, like a real estate agent out in the uh, the country, in the Riverland, was my first client when I was 14. I also had like some basic advertising sites that were making you know, five cent, 10 cents per click. Mm. Um, and then I sort of all let that go to the wayside, like went and got a teaching degree, Tried that out for a while, went, eh, this isn't quite so cool. Went back into tech and, you know, was bouncing around between a few different government departments. And it was like a, um, it was a Saturday night in June 2013, like had dinner, sitting at home with my partner Richard. We'd like been chatting about this for a while. And, um, so we went upstairs to the office in the, uh, the house we had, the townhouse in uh, Woodville Gardens. And there was this room, there was an office, and Richard was running like a uh, small tax accountancy practice out of there, and I had it set up, and I was back into the online marketing stuff, building a few small like ad sites, basically, that you throw the ads in, in the spaces there, and if somebody clicks, you want some money. Um, and you know, starting to see success with that, making like 1500 bucks a month. I'm like, all right, where are the people that are going all in on this? Um, and that's when I discovered, like, the Empire Flippers guys. And so they were based in Davao in the Philippines. And so on this Saturday night, we'd had a couple of drinks. We're like, all right, on the uh, mirror door of the uh, built-in robe in this, you know, what was a bedroom that was the home office, sitting there drawing up this 12-month timeline to uh, get out to Asia. And, and initially it was going to be Davao in the Philippines. Um, and as we drew out the timeline, um, we then said, well, why does it need to be 12 months? We shrunk it back to like six months um, and then just started planning and executing on that. Um, yeah. What were the underlying personal motivators for you? Was there like a kind of a, a dissatisfaction with, with life at the time or was, there, was it more just a sense of adventure? I guess a little bit of a sense of adventure but also – I kind of want to, you know, the, the old dream of like you want to be your own boss and run your own show and dictate how everything's done in your your day in your life and, you know, uh, getting up and jumping on a train into the, the CBD every morning. It starts to wear thin eventually. Did you, did you have a timeline at the, at the time as to how long you intended to stay there? Was it a quick trip or were you packing yep. your bags for good? So in the 12-month plan, we'd put in like a scouting trip. Like we'd go there for a week or two, check it out and see what it's like. But then we started chatting about it. It's like, well, what's going to de- like actually define a pass or a fail for that? And 
living in a city is going to be very different to holidaying in a city. It's like if you come to Adelaide for a holiday, you'd be like, yeah, I'd stay in a hotel somewhere in the CBD, go check out the wine centre, maybe catch a game at Adelaide Oval, go down Glenelg. Pretty well anywhere in the world you can go, apart from Morocco, you're going to have a great time on a holiday. But it's very different to actually live in the city. So we couldn't work out what would be a pass or fail, and so we just said, well, we'll skip that trip and, uh, you know, get there on the ground and decide, you know. What? Why Chiang Mai? So, as I mentioned before, Davao in the Philippines was where we were going to go. Um, but then once we started looking at travel insurance, uh, Davao is in a region in the Philippines which has got a do not travel warning on it. So travel insurance won't cover you if you travel there. So even though we knew guys, like a couple of American guys that were on the ground there and said, it's fine, it's safe, it's, you know, an amazing city to live in. Um, and that was around the time when uh, Duterte was the mayor of Davao before he now became like the president of the entire country. Um, so then we went looking where else and Chiang Mai, Thailand just kept popping up as like the like digital nomad SEO sort of hub of the world. Um, so why, so then, what makes a, what makes a city conducive to, to this life? Yeah. Um, well, there's a site called Nomad List, which was built after we moved there. Um, and they've sort of, I guess, helped summarize what makes a city good. But it's kind of obviously your cost of living factors, um, the availability of like decent internet speeds, which like on my last trip to Australia, I was suffering from. Um, yeah, this trip has been okay so far. Um, Just don't try and log on to Adelaide free Wi-Fi. I don't know <laughs> anyone that's actually been able to connect on it. Yeah, um, and so then, yeah, so it's like, yeah, internet, availability of food, the ability to, like, actually drop into a spot and stay pretty easily long-term, um, you know, availability of, like, apartments, all those sort of factors. Um, and then I guess once you get a certain number of people in the space, it sort of becomes this, like, hub and that network effect just, you know, helps make it a great spot to be. Um, and so for us, there was a ton of people doing SEO, that were in that city, so it made sense. So you mentioned it wasn't just a matter of packing your bags and just landing in a country and go, here we go, let's get the laptops out and, and build some businesses. What was the reality of the process to actually get prepared, tickle the boxes, the documentation? What was that like and did was it more uh, in-depth than you expected? Um, I mean, for us it was like have a look down that list, like obviously get some travel insurance that will cover us, get the vaccinations you need. So like, you know, hep A, hep B, vaccinations, that sort of stuff to keep you covered while you're there. Um, sorting out a visa. So a lot of Australians probably know Thailand is like, you rock up, you get 30 days on arrival with no visa and it's easy. Um, if you want to start staying there longer term, then it becomes this sort of thing of, well, what type of visa are you going to stay on? Um, and so some people stay on uh, education visas to like study Thai language or at the moment there's a popular one to study Muay Thai where you don't necessarily have to show up at classes too much. <laughs> um, or for us, we ended up on the working holiday visa program, which was 30 and under, university educated. You get 12 months right of stay um, when you enter and you get a multi-entry visa that lasts for 12 months. So effectively, you can drag that out to last two years. Um, and based on some of the stuff we'd seen of like, hey, cost of living in Chiang Mai, like when we, the stuff we read was, you know, 750, 800 USD per person. Um, and when we landed, we were counting every single last baht, which is like one baht is a 25th of an Australian dollar. Um, and so like when you're buying drinking water out of a filter machine, that was like one baht per litre. And we were tracking every single last baht that we were spending. Um, because we had a runway that would last us about two years, roughly, of savings. Um, and so we, we landed, calculating all that, following that. And initially at that time, you know, not eating a ton of Western food, you know, eating more Thai food all the time. Um, and, you know, an average mid-level apartment, we we're spending like 2,000 Australian or 1,500 US at the exchange rate at that time per month. Um, and then, like, that was 2014 when we went back at the end of 2015 we got like you know 
this 90 square meter apartment in a nicer building um, and eat a ton more Western food. I think now we're spending about like 2,500 US a month. So, you know, that's all in, fully furnished apartment. You know, we cook maybe once a week when we want to cook chili con carne because you can't go out and get that anywhere. Um, but otherwise, then you go out and wow. like, you go to a five star hotel there, have a steak from like with Australian beef steak, and that's like 30 Australian dollars. Um, yeah. Uh, you wrote a really interesting blog um, about the key things to do when you land in that first 24 hours. Yeah. Can you take us through some of the, the highlights, I guess, of that piece? Because I think it's, it's really valuable um, for people, you know, landing into a new city and going, where do I start? Yeah. So there's, like, groups that the same questions keep popping up of, like, where do I rent a like, scooter from and – what about drinking water and a SIM card and all those things? And so because I kept seeing those same questions over and over, I threw together this guide that I jokingly titled, like, Getting Set Up in Chiang Mai in 24 Hours. Um, and then I kind of put it to the test when we moved there or moved back there at the start of December 2015, and it pretty much happened like that. You know, landed, went, checked out an apartment, said, yep, okay, this is our apartment, that's great. Um, I've got a contact for, like, a... I know several people that rent scooters, but I've got a contact for a guy who sells them. Hit him up and said, look, I need a scooter. Went over, bought one on the spot. like it. And obviously, I went and got a SIM card from the, uh, the store there. And yeah, like pretty easy to get set up, ready to be functional within 24 hours. Um, yeah. It's awesome. Now, to, I guess, dig into the, the business side of what you're doing, because as you've said, it's not just a... Not just a holiday, you're actually trying to turn over some income as well. I guess to set the scene for us right now, what is the structure of your commercial world? Yeah. So at the moment, I've got two companies set up. One that I like to sort of describe as like a publishing company um, where we build and use SEO tactics to rank um, a portfolio of sites. There's 60 sites in there at the moment, probably about 50 to 55 are reasonable um, because there's still a few uh, stragglers sitting in there and a few that are probably like 10 or 15 that we built earlier this year that aren't ranking yet because, you know, if you build a new site, it can take up to 12 months to actually start hitting those page one rankings, those valuable page one rankings in Mm -hmm. Google. Um, So that's the the first business and basically that's monetized through – there's like product tables and buying guides and stuff to help people choose an item that they need and we send them off to Amazon so it targets the US market. We send them off to Amazon. When they buy it on Amazon, we collect a commission. Um, happy days. Pretty simple. You don't, apart from the occasional email of people like sending you an email asking like for their super specific situation, which I'll be honest with you, most of the time I read those emails, laugh, and then hit the delete button <laughs> um, because there's plenty of info on the site and, you know, I'm not here to be your personal recommendation. I'm here to serve, you know, the vast majority of people. Um, and so that's the first business. Um, the second business, which is I started this uh, when we moved back at the start of, oh, sorry, yeah, December 2015, is a, uh, a web hosting company that – uh, basically offers a specific type of web hosting for people who build private blog networks, which is one of the SEO strategies that's really popular for ranking these sort of affiliate sites. So you mentioned 55 or 60 websites on the go. Yeah. Um, and you're not, your strategy is, or I guess your, um, your, key issue that's come up, at least in a few other podcasts that you mentioned to me um, off interview, is that you don't actually reveal um, what those websites are targeting publicly. So you don't, you, like if I ask you right now, tell me some of the, uh, the websites and what they are, you won't tell me. Correct. Like, I, I'm not going to tell you the domain names. I'm not going to tell you the exact specific niches. I will generally talk in broad things. So a lot of the sites we operate are in uh, home improvement related niches um, because people quite often are searching for recommendations in those sort of niches. 
Um, home furnishings is another really popular sort of niche. Um, but yeah, if, if you said, Hey, what's one of your URLs? No, like why? So the, the competition in that space is pretty hot. And in terms of like, if I share one of my sites, I've seen public case studies before where people have shared URLs and then others will go and throw some negative SEO at that site, basically to try and get that site penalized and deranked. Um, or a niche that's shared publicly will then have a ton of people pile in and the competition goes up heavily. So like some of the public case studies I've looked at and seen the after effect on are things like um, Shavers was a popular one in uh, 2013 that had a public case study on. So like uh, manual shavers um, and electric shavers, um, you know, to male grooming sort of stuff, right? All of that was like publicly shared on a, a case study back then and if you look at the results now, it's just super competitive um, and the site that the case study was built around has been de-indexed. Um, like some of my sites, like the first one that we built when we moved to Thailand, um, which we sold 13 months after building it, that one is still ranking roughly where it was ranking then and, you know, still making some very tidy money for the uh, buyer. Can you, for, for the person who doesn't necessarily understand too much about SEO, so we're talking about search engine optimization, but can you just give us a bit more of an indication about the business around it, so the game that you're in? Yeah. So the, the tactic that I follow is, um, well, at, at its core, the two most important things are links to your site and the quality of the content on your site. Um, so for us, um, these sort of you know product review affiliate sites aren't necessarily the most linkable assets. Like, sure, you know we're starting to do a bit of outreach now to journalists um, through the Helper Reporter Out or Harrow platform, and you know answering some journalist questions in there and earning some links that way. But if we were trying to build links that way for the entire site, it would take forever to to get the the number of links we need to rank. Um, so what we do is build these private blog networks, which are basically. Um, if you think of, say, I mean, we're, we're here on Lee Street. It's a very popular sort of restaurant area. And, I mean, I haven't been in Adelaide for two years, but I'm sure there's been a few restaurants down here that have opened and then cl- closed down in that time. Um, and some other examples of the sort of things that, um, yeah, that, that, I guess that's just one example of a website that was built, would have got some links to it, and then for whatever reason is no longer like maintained by its owner. Um and so we then buy those domains when they expire, rebuild a similar-looking site on it, and then send links to the affiliate sites or the product review sites that we're trying to rank from those expired sites. Um, and so then by picking up that, those domains that already have links pointing to them and therefore like Google Juice in the uh, you know, sort of insider word that a lot of people use, it's a lot easier to get the links you need to rank one of those review sites. In the last few years, how has it changed? Uh, the last three years, like, the competition continues to go up, the number of links you need, and then also, like, there's been, you know, every six months normally there's, like, a rather major Google algorithm shift that, you know, has come down. Um, so for most of them, we did all right. There was one in um, March this year that sort of got nicknamed Fred, um, which hit you know a couple of our sites pretty hard um and also around that same time we had the problem of uh when you only have a single customer which for us in the affiliate business is amazon you're sort of at you know their mercy um and so at the end of february they announced a um a restructure of their commission rates and so they went from um basically a volume base. So the more items that you shipped, you moved up in tiers. Um, and so we're at a tier where it was like 8.5% of everything we sold, um, apart from electronics, which was always four, to it all getting shifted around to uh, per-category-based things. So like toys and games, for example, if we were selling those, which we weren't, they got reduced all the way down to uh, 3%. Um, 
the home improvement staff was staying around seven to eight. But overnight, once that was announced, like we recalculated. So Richard, being a former accountant, we downloaded all those uh, historical things for the last couple of months prior, recalculated it, and it meant about a 20 to 25% hit to our uh, top line revenue, like overnight from that change, which, you know, even us, like we're doing some reasonable numbers with Amazon. Um, they reached out to a few people that I know that were doing similar numbers and sort of were chatting to them about the, uh, the upcoming change. And they were like, this is the change that's coming down. We've decided like there's, there's nothing that, you know, there's no working around that. So, yeah. you know, all of a sudden, yeah, that sort of 20, 25% hit overnight. So you can't, how do you guard against issues like that that are kind of tied up to being at the mercy of one one big entity yeah i mean i guess like so um let's just consider these podcasting mics for a moment if i had a site around podcasting mics there are other you know affiliate programs that i could direct that traffic to um so uh I can't think of one off the top of my head that would compete with Amazon in that niche, but I'm sure there would be mm. a specialist store that we could redirect that traffic to. The reason that we like to stick with Amazon is they spend a ton and they have a ton of really smart guys doing conversion rate optimization to make sure that their sales pages convert at the highest clip. Um, and so like if you throw that traffic to another program, so like if it's a home sort of thing and you through the traffic to uh, Home Depot or to Walmart in the US, then your conversion rates are going to go down, which then effectively means your actual earnings are going to go down. Um, but once you've got the traffic, you can then you can play around with that monetization and look at different ways um, for sure. So you mentioned that you've sold a couple of websites. What yeah. was that process like for you? Um, exciting, painful... Um, you know, really tough to decide whether to, to make that. Because uh, you're earning good revenue from these sites, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so like, and the first site we sold was the first site that we built when we moved to Thailand. Um, and so you're constantly sort of, you're looking at the income and wondering like, hey, will it go up more? Will it go down? Is it sort of at a plateau now? Like, where is it at? Um, and for that site, it was kind of the situation of, uh, hey, it's making some good dollars, we can sell it. And at that time, the uh, the industry multiple was 20 times uh, monthly profit from the site. Um, and so that was like a, uh, that was the list price that went up for. Um, it sat on the brokerage on the marketplace for about three or four months um, and then sold at slightly under that multiple. Um, but, you know, it was a nice, healthy six-figure exit. And, uh, you know, like, yes, that was, you know, once that wire hit my account, um, it's like, wow, like, you know, like if, if it all fell over the next day, we'd taken some money off the table at that point and, you know, would have had a great year of 2014 in Thailand, made more than we would have had if we just stuck around working our jobs here. And then, uh, yeah. But then, of course, we continued to build more and sold more. And six yeah. figures goes a fair way in Thailand. I would have thought. Yeah, it it would. Because <laughs> yeah. it's an interesting one, isn't it? The um, the decision to actually put it up for sale. Uh, what was your thinking there? Did you was your view at the time that it had plateaued, or were you just ready to move on? Well, we'd seen it go from. Uh, like two or three months after we'd built it, um, it was making three, four hundred dollars a month, and then it gone and hit more like five, and then it went up to ten or eleven a month. And I mean, we didn't have like that being our oldest site, we didn't have more history to know. Well, is this you know like going to go even further or not? But we sort of had to take a bit of a guess. And you know, when you're looking at roughly a two hundred k payday, <laughs> you know, you see those numbers and you're like. All right. Yep. Yep. I would like to see that in my bank account. <laughs> so, is the from a strategic perspective, when you're setting up these sites, are you always thinking with an exit in mind, or are you just thinking about um, the affiliate commissions, the ongoing revenue? Uh, when I started, 
I was always planning just to build and hold, build and hold. And then as time went on, I was like, hey, no, like the strategy shifted to be like, actually, if we can, you know, build them, sort of run it as like a little bit of an incubator and then like, you know, once they stabilize and get some uh, great um, revenue there, flip them and, you know, you do one of them a year, like you're doing well without even factoring in all the revenue that you're getting from the holding and growth portfolio side of it. So I would assume that you've got a pretty solid system down pat now in terms of building the site, um, you know, looking at the, the model in terms of, you know, the margins that you need and, and all of that sort of stuff. Is that IP something that can be commercialised as well? I mean, there's so many blogs out there that basically share the, the core parts of that for free. Okay. That, yeah, I mean, if I want to, I'm sure I could, you know, throw together a training course and, you know, charge somewhere in the 297 yeah. to 997 for that. But, like, I don't know. I sort of feel that, hey, there's a plenty of other great resources out there that nobody's, mm. like, that they aren't charging for that, you know, like, how much more am I going to add? So for context, what are you investing into a typical site in terms of time to build it, yep. um, ongoing time on a weekly basis, and actual ongoing cost? Yeah, so to build a site, um, there's the initial like keyword research phase, um, which my partner Richard does. So he'll you know look at all sorts of random ideas, um, you know, from like, you know, we're, we're here in this office here. So you might look at the chairs here and go, okay, let's have a look at office chairs. And so basically we've, and like there are commercial tools out there, but we've ended up building our own tool that does some calculations now based on, um, basically what we look at is who's ranking in the top 10. What's the stats of their domain? So like how many links have they got going to that domain? How powerful is it? Um, and then a little bit of the, uh, I guess the gut intuition of like how likely are we to actually be able to build a site and rank in there. Um, and like Richard's been through and killed so many ideas and also, you know, approved so many ideas now that you sort of get that gut feel of like, okay, where is it at? Are we likely to be able to proceed with this one or not? Um, and so a lot of his time is either doing that or uh, managing like, he manages also the, the content production and the writer's side of the business. Um, and so that's his, you know, full-time work. Um, mm. And mine is then uh, actually I've got a guy in India who helps me with the site builds um, and then I'll sort of review his work and then publish it and then also, um, yeah, like managing all the SEO stuff of like, you know, po posting all the link articles from our blog network to link to the new money site and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, in terms of the keyword research side, I, maybe he'd spend 15 hours to like find a keyword set that works um, on average. Um, and then it goes to our writer, he writes it, comes back, we do all the SEO. We probably spend like $1,500 all in by the time we buy the, the links, um, the, well, the content for those links and allocate you know, some money to build and run that uh, link network. Um, and then we sort of allocate an internal charge against uh, the site to running that link network as well. So like our internal charge is loosely based on what some other people charge that build and run those private blog networks mm -hmm. commercially. Um, and so ongoing, the internal charging is about 180 to 200 bucks a month. Um, but, you know, the cost, the actual cost number is lower than that. Mm. To, I guess, bring together a few of the points that you've made, uh, how would you describe, I guess, some of the key factors or the key ingredients in your secret sauce for, to actually nail this with a yep. website? I think one of the biggest, like, you know, uh, part of the secret sauce now is Richard's almost intuition for looking at, a, you know, the top 10 results and going, okay, yep, we could slot a site in there and, you know, rank it and make some cash off of that. Um, but based on experience. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, you do it for three years and you've looked at, you know, what, tens of thousands of page one results. Like, you get pretty good at that. Um, so I guess that's some of the secret sauce. And then, 
you know, from my side, like I've always had a bit of an eye for design and built websites from, you know, back when I was 14 on, on. And so, you know, my side of being able to, you know, throw together a well-crafted site and make it look good and, you know, authoritative and have people want to, you know, trust that site when they're trying to buy a podcast microphone and click through and actually trust our recommendation and buy. I guess that's sort of the two, you know, components there. In this world, do you look at typical business issues like succession? Do you look at things like that and go, how, you know, how do I plan for my future in this world which does seem, um, you know, a bit volatile or, you know, earning a lot now when potentially, you know, Amazon could pull the rug out, rug out from underneath you? How do you think about succession? Um, I guess that's kind of what led me to build the second business, the, the hosting business, was, you know, to diversify the income streams a bit and, uh, you know, uh, if it all stopped tomorrow, then, hey, whatever. Um, that combined with, I guess, you know, selling some sites and, you know, taking money off the table where you can are kind of the two factors of how we try and, you know, manage that volatile who knows what's going to happen in the future with the affiliate stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like once you start getting some of that stuff going and, you know, so we built that and then I started building the web hosting company because based on the problems I was finding with trying to build all of that in the affiliate stuff. And then you just start to spot more opportunities of like things that you could build and monetize and sell. Um, so right now we're getting started, as I said before, on like, reaching out to reporters and doing that sort of outreach stuff um, for the affiliate sites. Um, and that's a service that's kind of heavily in demand in the uh, affiliate marketing world. So we could turn around and start monetizing and selling that. There's like, you know, you just start to spot all these opportunities and have to decide which ones to execute on. So you've mentioned that uh, this space, digital nomads, affiliate marketing, is becoming increasingly popular if you had your crystal ball, what's the future in this space look um, like? If you speak to a lot of my friends at the moment in Chiang Mai, the future is Bitcoin. Everything oh, is Bitcoin. Yeah. Like, you know, so I've, I've got you know, a lot of my friends who um, – a, a lot of the guys I know over there as well are building like fulfillment by Amazon uh, businesses where they basically source from a factory in China a generic product – have their label slapped on it, have their branding slapped on it, ship it to Amazon. Amazon handles all the actual uh, fulfillment, sending it out to the customers, and you know they make their margin. Um, and like one of my friends who's in that space, um, a guy named Ben from Queensland, uh, got into Bitcoin at maybe two k, and like just won't stop talking about Bitcoin. So if you believe those guys in the digital nomad space, and you know the futures that. Um, so in terms of I mean, everyone's talking about cryptocurrency, but from from the affiliate space, what does that look like? Like creating websites and content around that as a as an interest point? Yeah, I mean, like there's there's that um, Peter Levels guy who built Nomad List, who's you know really started to do well out of uh, building that and creating a community around that. Um, there's businesses that exist purely to take people who are working in like a regular nine to five job help them negotiate with their bosses to go and spend some time traveling the world and uh you know then you know so that's like remote year um there's a couple of other groups like that as well that actually help coordinate that you know ease into the space um but the more and more that i get involved the more that i think that the future is kind of this whole remote work work from anywhere thing so like uh the team that we've built for both the affiliate stuff and now the uh the hosting stuff, uh, you know, they're free to live and work wherever they want, provide the work gets done. Um, you know, so for my support, I've got um, a guy who's also currently in Adelaide, um, but he spent some time in Chiang Mai with me last year. He's coming back across early next year to hang out again for a while. Um, and the other guy I got doing support is based in South Africa at the moment. And you're just like, you can hire people from wherever. It's not like, you know so tied into where they are and where they're living as long as they can get the work done. Um, yeah. A lot of listeners, I reckon, uh, would be 
listening to you and going, you know what, I would love to give this a crack, but I've got a family, I've got a mortgage. Is it possible for for someone um, who has those complexities to actually pursue this life? Yeah, I mean, like one of the – there's another Australian – I know I keep saying to you, like, I hang out with a ton of Americans and Brits over there, but all the examples I'm pulling at the moment are Australians. Um, there's an, another Australian guy I know over there who runs um, a handful of e-commerce, like, dropshipping businesses, and he's got one – I think he's got one kid, like, a daughter who's about three or four years old, and they travel together. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, you, you run into additional problems of, like – Hey, you kind of need to base like home base a bit more, unless you want to start homeschooling your kid. But you know, if you like pick Chiang Mai for example, there's a ton of uh, dual language um, English international schools there that you know are great schools you could send your kids to. I'm sure, you get a lot of people asking you for tips about how to actually make the jump. Um, what do you say to them when someone says that? Like, say you know. Me, I've, I've spoken about it. Geez, I would love to do it. What would be the first thing that you would say in response to that? I guess it depends on their work situation at the moment. Like for you with Pixstar the little startup thing, maybe it'd be pretty possible for you to actually start jumping around a bit. Um, you know, the easiest way to test that might be to uh, start working from home one or two days a week, and you know, seeing what happens. Because hey, if you're you know at home. And it all hits the fan, and I guess you can jump into the office. But more and more things can be sorted by like Skype or email or phone call or whatever. And like, you know, so long as you're roughly on the same time zone, it would work. Um, you know, counter being like, hey, if you're on the complete opposite time zone to where all your workers are, then you're going to have some problems. Um, for others, though, like one of the easiest ways to get started in the space, and there are plenty of uh, digital nomads doing it is like looking at existing skills that you've got, jumping on a platform like Upwork, which allows you to you know, work remotely with companies that are looking for remote workers, and then start doing that. Um, now, on Upwork, it's all very freelance and uh, contract-based stuff. Um, there are other job boards, though, like uh, Remote OK and uh, the Dynamite Circle job board, which allow you to you know, get more of those like, full-time sort of positions that, uh, just basically from companies like mine that are looking for remote workers and quite happy to have you live and work and travel wherever you want provided the work gets done. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, I'm keen to highlight some more key learnings and um, it's all sounded pretty good, but what's gone wrong? Um, are there any stories that you've got whether it doesn't have to be business related, it can be just like, you know, this completely went pear shaped. Surely you've got some terrible travel stories for there's, us. There's plenty of terrible travel stories, but generally they end up relating back to my ability to get on Wi Fi or the ability to connect to the internet. Um, and so um, there's this sort of inside joke in our community that the businesses aren't built on the beach, they're built in some shitty Airbnb in the suburbs somewhere. Um, and so like to sort of relate to that, we had a, um, mid 2015, we spent two months living in Berlin and, uh, the apartment that we had there had this 30 gig a month cap. And then after that, it slowed, like slowed down to like dial up, like crawling speeds. And like you work online, like we go through like a gig plus of data a day. So like very quickly, like it's capped and you're just like, oh. God damn it. Like, you know, yeah. having to jump out to like coffee shops constantly or, yeah, like the Wi Fi connection is so vital in this space. Like, yeah. And there are obviously some countries where it's just uh, not possible, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, like, like Australia. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, want, I want to be polite about Adelaide. Like, <laughs> Adelaide's the gig city, right? Um, no, I mean, like, CM Reap in Cambodia, for example, is a pretty crappy spot for Wi-Fi, um, which I'm kind of stressed about next year when, like, I'm going there, um, so Rich and I are going there, plus my support guy Christian's coming out as well, and we're going to, like, a remote village somewhere in Cambodia to 
help build a playground. Um, so there's like a foundation that helps build these. We funded a playground and said, yeah, hey, we're going to come along and help put it together. Um, but all of our support, like myself and Christian, are all going to be there. So I guess I've got my guy in South Africa who can like take care of things. But, you know, if anything too majorly hits the fan, then who knows? Like Risky. remote Cambodia, what's the internet going to be like for sure? What has surprised you in terms of working really well? That when you set out on this adventure that you perhaps weren't sure of, what's worked? All right, so uh, we were just going through a bit of a clean-up um, of our apartment in Chiang Mai just before coming over to Australia here, and Richard was going through like his old notebooks of um, some of the stuff where we were doing the planning before we moved in 2014, and one of the things he had there was like build 10 websites earning 4K a month total in income. And like, look at that now. I'm like, yeah, like at the time, we're like, yeah, you know, 10 sites, so 400 bucks a site based on some numbers that we'd seen thrown around online seemed possible. And then, you know, the first site we build, making 10K a month by the time we're selling it, you're like, yeah, okay, we kind of hit it out of the park. Like, yeah, so that was definitely a huge success. Um, another one was like that, the uh, hosting company that I set up where I ran some initial numbers and projections and, you know, we sort of said, hey, if this is making a couple grand a month and solves our internal problem as well of, you know, setting up the hosting for our own private blog networks, then great, like this is a success. And again, that's kind of, been amazingly successful and we've got like a guy on board now who does support for us mm. and so you know there's those have definitely been some successes so two-part question um, reflecting on the adventures so far what have you learned about yourself from the journey and then what have you learned about business um about myself i'm a terrible manager but i'm improving in that space um and i guess about business it's more it's really all around the numbers and the importance of getting those numbers right um and so like earlier this year we sunk three and a half grand into trying to build a tool to solve the domain registration problem for people building private blog networks and i modeled like richard modeled it out with you know a nice tidy three to four dollar per domain per year margin in there, and we said, "Hey, if we get enough registration, registrations, it's not going to be huge, but it'll be all right." And then once we threw it out in the market and started offering it, people were like, "Why are you charging me thirteen dollars for this domain when I can go direct to these guys and buy it for nine? And it wasn't a problem that you know people can actually, or it wasn't a big enough problem for people to pay for, you know. So you just couldn't monetize that solution. So you know, that ability or the, the need in the market for something, for a solution is kind of important. Do you have any personal practices that help keep you grounded, keep you focused? I would imagine that being in a, you know, a holiday paradise, as it were, that you could potentially lose focus. Like, what, what do you do every day to keep you on track? Um, I guess I, me personally, I'm a pretty driven guy. I really want to be super successful with it so you know i'm not one for like yeah i'm in this party party paradise like i just you know dig off and like drink cocktails all day plus there's no beach in chiang mai so that's the mm. other the other part um but you know i guess sort of balancing those two of like um we spent five or six months this year in the middle of the year where we didn't really travel at all and i hit you know almost cabin fever levels of like no, I need a break. I need to get out. And, you know, so like last minute booked a trip to uh, Taipei just to get away for a weekend and relax and recharge and all that. But otherwise, yeah, I'd probably just work seven hours a day, 12 plus hours a day if uh, if it was just Just love me. it. Yeah. So I've got a, um, you know, you're a regular Rooster listener, so you would know that our rapid fire is pretty poorly delivered and probably even more so now that I don't have begs with me at the moment to actually help get me through but I have actually done a little bit of preparation so my rapid fire is going to be more based around some of the the fun stuff uh, with what you do so to kick things off 
in a very fast list, where have you travelled over the last couple of years? Uh, so since leaving Australia at December 2015, we've hit uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Cambodia for the second time, um, Taipei, uh, the Azores, which is this beautiful little uh, archipelago of islands in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, one of the best spots for spotting uh, sperm whales. We went there for Richard's 30th. Um, uh, Bangkok a million times, obviously. Uh, Japan knocked that off the list earlier this year. Um, and a really quick border run to Hong Kong a few weeks ago where we had an hour between when the plane landed and when the plane took off to clear immigration and security in and out of the country and get back to the plane to uh, some surprise looks from the uh, the flight crew who were like, what, you're back already? <laughs> what about, of that list, best places for work and play where perhaps you thought, you know what, I might actually move? Um, I really do like Hong Kong, but the cost of living there is a little crazy. Um, it kind of has this nice mix between Singapore, which is too sterile, and Bangkok, which is completely unlivable. Um, like the traffic in Bangkok is super oppressive. Um, Chiang Mai, though, I every time I travel, I end up keep going back to Chiang Mai and feeling just relaxed there because everything's super easy. You know, like I can send my laundry out, I can get food delivered easily. Like it's all a little too easy at times there. Worst place that you would... When you landed there, you're like, just get me out of here. I could never work here. I could never stay here for a moment longer. All right. Great story on this one. Um, so I'd seen a ton of pictures online of a city in Morocco called uh, Chefchoun. Siri's just gone off. Yeah. Obviously, I said <laughs> city, which sounded too much like Siri. Um, yeah. So this amazing city in Morocco, it's like, kind of nicknamed the blue city because it's all blue walls. It's Instagram, like Instagrammers love it. And so with that in mind, it's like, yeah, I want to, want to go to Morocco. Um, and so in 2015, we booked this Contiki trip, which took us through like Spain, um, a couple of amazing cities there, including uh, Granada, which is one that we might actually go and live in for like a month or so next year, um, and Seville. Um and then into Morocco. And so we catch the ferry across into Morocco, um, get there, land or like, you know, on the Kentucky coach, get into Fez. And one of my favorite things to do in every city I visit or every country I visit is try and go to a McDonald's. Like, go and have a look at the menu. Why? See, all right. So I kind of really like McDonald's. Like, <laughs> go there, see what's on the menu. See, like, one of my favorite things is like, looking for those local things that they throw on the menu. I suppose and McDonald's also, is like a global barometer, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's like the thing that you start to learn is there's the, the global six menu of like, uh, you know, the Big Mac, the uh, the nuggets, you know, the cheeseburgers, like those basics, right? And then there's the local things. And so like there'll be different local things mixed into Oreos, for example, or sorry, into McFlurries, for example, and there'll be other random menu items. So like in Thailand, you can buy fried chicken there. And a couple of like local Thai dishes made McDonald's style. Um, and so like you'll go into the, the McDonald's near the university there and there'll just be students there with huge trays of like fried chicken and huge trays of like French fries. Um, but yeah, so we go to this, uh, McDonald's in Fez. It was about a kilometer from the hotel we were staying in. I walk up there with a group of like, 10 other travellers from this Kentucky. There's like some Americans and a couple of other Aussies. We get to the McDonald's and inside it's like two-storey thing. On the top floor there's this beautiful like, you know, tiled sort of, you know, that, um, yeah, beautiful tiled roof there. Looked amazing. There's like, you know, a few locals in there. It wasn't quite as like McDonald's or KFC in Thailand, like, the Thai students are just taking selfies the whole time, like, look at me, I'm in KFC. Um, it wasn't quite that sort of vibe there, but, you know, there's, you know, a couple of locals probably for, like, their most amazing meal of the week. Um, and then we go next door to the mall. And the mall, like, the girls want to go shopping. We're like, all right, you guys go do some shopping. We'll meet you back at this spot at this time. We meet them back, and they, um, one of the girls 
had, um, yeah, they'd been through a few shops. She went to go to the bathroom. In the uh, bathroom, she's like going through her handbag. She can't find her purse. She like eventually sees there's like this slit on the internal lining and the purse is in there. Like they'd been to the security. The security mm-hmm. were like, oh, like, can't help you, can't help you. And then three days later, she gets this call from the, uh, the credit card company saying, hey, like, have you been using this online casino? She's like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, and then like at the end of that trip, we, um, we spend one night in uh, Tangier, which is near the port. Um, in this hotel, um, as we pull into the city, there's like 20 plus kids, like from 12 to 16 years old, all sort of looking at the coach, like pointing at it, looking at, you know, cause it had like European plates on it. Um, so like, oh, okay, this isn't so good. Like Rich and I travel with carry on. So it was pretty easy to just like grab the bags and get the hell into the hotel. Um, and there were some people on our tour who were like, Hey, where's like, do you know where the foreign exchange is? Because, like, you know, hey, we've got Moroccan dirhams that we want to get rid of and get back into euros. And uh, at this point, we discovered um, the on-site little restaurant thing was selling bottles of wine for about 10 Australian dollars. Um, and there was, like, these um, this couple from Queensland that we're hanging out with, and uh, between the four of us, we drank, like, six bottles of wine. And so one of the times when, like, one of the other – People in our group came over and like, hey, where's like the, uh, where's the foreign exchange? I'm like, yeah, you just go over there, you give them, you know, 10 euros equivalent in Moroccan dirhams, they'll give you a bottle of red wine. I was like, this is great. And they're like, this isn't what I want. I just want to get rid of my money. (laughs) So yeah, Morocco, never again. Okay, rule that one out, uh, listeners. Uh, The non-negotiables in your travel kit. Right, non-negotiables is a local SIM card wherever the hell I travel. Um, so Even for short stints? Yeah. So like we're in uh, uh, Taipei for a four-day weekend, get a SIM. One for Google Maps, two for Uber, three for just general like web research whenever you're around, and then four to be in contact for like the support side of my business if like my team need to hit me up. Um okay. You know, if it costs me 20, 30 USD, even for the weekend, I don't care. I need that SIM. I need to be in contact. Um, and I can't stand people when they're like, yeah, I'm just Wi-Fi only. I'm like, you're killing me. <laughs> what else is in the kit? Anything else? Um, so mostly I travel. Otherwise it's a small, I can see why it'd be small carry-on luggage if you've just got SIM cards in there. <laughs> yeah, mostly I travel carry-on as well. So like generally try not to travel with check luggage. So I've got this um, this bag built by a couple of Kiwi guys uh, called Manal, and they build this amazing like carry-on luggage backpack thing. And so obviously in there's like my laptop, um, all the chargers, a huge spare battery pack. Um, yeah, just the essentials really. Next destination on your list? So we've just been planning out next year. Um, so... Obviously, we'll go back to uh, Chiang Mai in January. We'll be there for two or three weeks off to Cambodia to build that playground, head back for a month. At the end of uh, February, we're off to the States for three months um, with very little planned other than we're flying business class and landing in LAX and we'll get a spot in Austin sometime around April for like a month or so to have that home base and actually get work done. Um, it's my first trip to the US, so... There's going to be a lot of slacking off and uh, touristing around. Um, Austin, I've heard good things about Austin as a bit of an up-and-coming destination. Yeah, Austin's kind of, um, from what I've been told, from uh, I guess like the Dynamite Circle community and a few others, like it's kind of this hub for people building like small bootstrapped online businesses. Um, it's also uh, like Tim Ferriss has recently moved there. Noah Kagan from AppSumo or Sumo.com has moved there recently. So it's kind of got this up-and-coming tech scene. Um, Australian uh, startup Darlings uh, Atlassian have got an office there as well. So, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a tech online business sort of hub now. you see yourself ever coming back to Adelaide on a permanent basis? Um, so I hope mum and dad aren't listening to this. 
no, I don't have a plan to return at this stage. Like, yeah, this is my first trip back for two years and it's kind of, you know, great to be back and, you know, seeing a few familiar faces and a few familiar spots. But at the same time, like, oh, like there's a part of me that's already looking forward to that flight back. Yeah, so that was, yeah, it's, it's always interesting when people come home, like what their overwhelming reaction is. So yours was more, oh, yeah, this is all right, but I'm pretty keen to get back. Yeah, like, I mean, so there, there are some things that I can't get over there that, you know, this trip is pretty much just me stuffing my face with all these things. So, like, sausage rolls are, like, unavailable over there. Um, there's a few, like, I found one spot and it was pretty bad, pretty bad rendition of the sausage <laughs> roll. Um, uh a few other, you know, local spots are like, you know, I'll, I'll definitely be hitting Billy's a few times and, you know, it would be great to actually go and watch the Sixers live rather than just yeah. live streaming that at like somewhere between like one thirty and 3.30 p.m., you know, like to actually go back. Like, so I used to have season tickets. Um, so to actually go back to that will be, you know, fun and you see a few of the local spots and stuff. But at the same time, like, yeah. Awesome. Okay. And my final question is... What fills your playlist, both from a podcast perspective, but also music? Um, Podcast-wise, I'm pretty big on the stuff that Gimlet are throwing out. So I absolutely burnt through uh, the Startup podcast. Um, Started listening to that in March when I was in Vietnam, April when I was in Vietnam, and so I was listening to that a ton. also, their other one, The Pitch, which is kind of a little bit like a real-life, uh, more real-life Shark Tank. Um, so that's good. You guys, obviously, TMBA, um, the Y Combinator podcast, um, to hear that other side. This is like, I'm a very bootstrap business, you know, build it off your profits. And, you know, they're very much like, hey, let's uh, yeah, invest throw, in. throw a ton of cash in and it's either to the moon or bust. Mm. Um and uh, indie hackers. So that's kind of my podcast playlist. Um, in terms of music playlist, um, like to put it in Adelaide radio terms, it's somewhere between Triple J and Nova, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, but you know, like I was sort of flicking between both of those stations in the the rental car. Um, and neither was super great. Yeah, they're kind of blending together now, I think. I think Nova's trying to be a bit more Triple J and Triple J's trying to be a bit more commercial. But that's just my – that's a separate podcast discussion, <laughs> I think. Uh, Kev, mate, thanks so much for um, for coming in. As as we said off the top, it's been a, been a long time coming. And now that I actually – would you believe it um, – Rach, who's our, our little Pixar intern over there, has actually helped set us up for Skype interviews, would you believe? Yeah, <laughs> we're getting crazy with tech here at Rooster. So, mate, I'll be able to do a follow-up with you at some point and check in. So make sure you, you let me know when you've got, a, got an update because um, you're doing some interesting stuff. Cool. Well, it's great to be here. Great to uh, do these in-person podcasts. It's only the second one um, that I've done in person I kind of prefer it because, like, you've got the person sitting opposite you. You can actually, you know, it's not just this pixelated screen yeah. and, like, you can feel the vibe a bit more. It's like, yeah. Mate, when that's what we always – I mean, look, a big part of it is we just weren't set up to, <laughs> to do it. But that actually is an important thing because you get a completely different dynamic when you actually sit down with someone, you see them face-to-face. It's almost like a bit of a bit of an atmosphere that's created. I'd, I always feel a bit disconnected when I talk to someone on Skype. Yeah. Like, so being the second one now, like – one one of my like little uh, guilty pleasures is reality TV. So I think we mentioned off air that like you know I love tuning into the block. One of the other things I watch a ton of is like the UK version of Big Brother because um, a lot of the stuff they did in the Australian one was pretty much ripped off of the the UK one. Okay. Um, and I've seen a few housemates in interviews after they've left the uh, the Big Brother house talk about how like the cameras just disappear and fade away and, like, you you don't really think about them there. And Mm -hmm. I I think in my second face-to-face podcast interview, you sort of feel the same way. Like, yes, this thing's, like, in front of me, but unlike when I'm doing a Skype one and I'm, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of focusing on it a bit more, like, here it's just, yeah, it's, like, just goes away. We're just having a chat. It's it's so true. People 
have told us after interviews, because we do quite long interviews as well, it is conducive to people forgetting that they're actually um, that they're actually being recorded. And also, we often have booze, so that also <laughs> helps as well. But it does people forget, and they just start having a chat, and often they start opening up. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting, mate. So thanks for coming in. No worries. Thanks for listening to our chat with Kevin Graham. To connect with Kevin, visit kevingraham.com. We have plenty of interesting interviews in the bank and many more to come, so subscribe to Rooster Radio. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a review in iTunes and connect with us at roosterradio.biz. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.